James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Please turn there. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 from the ESV translation. This is God's holy and inspired word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, you, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. There was a father who was looking outside the church buildings at the playground, and he was watching his daughter play, and she was having a good time with her friends. And next thing he noticed as he was watching her, she started arguing with her friends and started getting in a fight with her friends. And so he runs outside, and he tries to calm things down. He said, honey, what is going on here? And she said, oh, dad, we're just playing church. (laughs) we're just acting, we're just playing church. Now, when you think about church, you think about how there can be fighting in the church, whether it's fighting amongst different denominations, and we could easily do that. It can be fighting among its own denomination, and we've seen that over the years, even in the PCA, our denomination. It can also be fighting amongst individual churches and families. And it's devastating when people in the church fight and when they quarrel. This first question in James chapter 4 is, why? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You see, the, the people in this early church day and age, they were believers and they were in a church that was scattered all throughout different regions and they started the early church And as I preached last week, I talked about the difference between heavenly wisdom and worldly, earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is that of humility, meekness, being peacemakers, cooperating with one another. Earthly, worldly wisdom is that of selfish ambition or jealousy. It causes strife and disorder and chaos. That's what worldly wisdom is. And as we look at James 4, we see that Right after we looked at James 3, we see in 4 that the people of God, they were were really exhibiting that of worldly, earthly wisdom and not heavenly wisdom because they were fighting amongst each other. And what caused those fights? Well, there's three things. It's wrong desires, it's wrong motives, and it's wrong friends. What causes dissension and quarreling and disunity in the church? 
First is wrong desires. Verse 1 and 2, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. The word passion is hedone or hedone. It's where we get the word hedonist or hedonism. Hedonism, it means to have a desire for pleasure, to be self-satisfied, to be self-fulfilled. We have wrong desires constantly because we're fighting our sinful nature, the sinful flesh. And because of that, we have these appetites for things that we shouldn't desire and shouldn't want. And that's the number one reason why the people in the early church and why the churches today get in fights. Why the people in the church get in fights is because we desire things that we shouldn't desire. We covet things we shouldn't covet. And that's the word used here, covet. It means to burn with zeal. It means to be heated, to tear others down. The text goes on to say, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Think of what coveting is. Coveting is desiring something that you don't have, wishing you had it. Someone else may have something and you want it, but yet you may not be able to afford it or you may not have it yet. That's jealousy. That's coveting. You're envious of that person. And oftentimes when we envy one another, we even think harshly of that person, even to the extent that we might want them dead. That's why the word murder here is used. I don't believe James was saying that that people were murdering one another physically, but often throughout the New Testament, the word murder is used as slander, as false accusations, as verbal assaults. That's what I believe was taking place. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and I'm sure he remembered Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talked about murder, and this is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount was when you are harsh with someone, when you ridicule someone, when you verbally attack someone, when you call them a fool, it's as if... You're murdering them. You're taking their life. And as we look at this chapter, chapter 4, we see that the believers in the early church were killing each other with their words. They were harsh and critical with one another because they had wrong desires and they wanted what the other person had. And because they wanted what the other person had, they wished harm on those people. I was reading about an example this week of of two veterans who were placed in a hospital. This was back in the day, and and they were placed in a small room together where they had to share a room. And because of their condition, they, they couldn't have a TV in the room. They had no radio. They needed it to be quiet because any, any kind of noise or movement would really cause anxiety to them and it would work them up. Both these men were were placed on these beds and had to lay flat most of the day. There was one man who was sitting next to a window and the other man was not. The one next to the window was able to, his bed was raised for about an hour a day because they needed to drain out fluid in his body. And it was that hour that he looked forward to the most because he could look out the window. 
and see what was going on out there. As these men were there in this hospital bed, lonely, they would talk and they would get to know each other. They talked about each other's childhoods. They talked about their families. They talked about their war stories. And then after they really did all the talking about their families and backgrounds, the the man during next to the window during that one hour where he was lifted up where he could look at the window, out the window, he would explain to the other man what he was seeing. And he said to the other man who's lying flat on his back, he's saying, hey, I, I see the sunset. Or, or hey, I, I see birds in the sky. I, I see these, these young couples holding hands and glimmering in the sunset. I, I, I see a, a softball game going on. And he would just describe all the things he would see outside the window. And, and the, the man laying next to him that couldn't look out the window, he was just always looking forward to that one hour because he could hear what was going on out on the outside world. But there was one moment where the man next to the window said, I see a parade. And it was at that moment the man next to him began to get jealous. And he was envious. And he said, or he was thinking to himself, why can't I be next to the window? Why does he get to be next to the window? Why can't I be the one next to the window so I can see all these things? And then he started second-guessing himself. I shouldn't be thinking this. This is my friend. I shouldn't think negative. But the more he would try to stop thinking negatively about his friend, the worse it would get. And he just grew in rage in his mind towards his friend because the, the guy got to look outside the window and he didn't. One night, it was late in the evening, the man next to the window started coughing, a deadly cough, and he couldn't stop. And he was searching frantically beside his bed to find that button to push so the, the night nurse would run in to check on him, but he couldn't reach it. And he just kept coughing and coughing and coughing, and nobody would come to help him. The man next to him just laid there still and did nothing to help his friend. It turns out the next morning, the day nurse comes in and sees the man next to the window dead. And then they take the, the dead body out of the room. And a few minutes later, the man who wasn't next to the window said, do you mind moving me next to the window now? They moved him next to the window. And right as they, the nurses left the room and left him to himself, he, he struggled to, to get up on his elbow to look outside the window. And as he got up in pain and he looked out the window, he realized he was looking at a blank wall. And he thought to himself, my friend made up all those stories to cheer me up. And now I have no one to talk to. Jealousy and envy can get the best of us. And when we desire the things of the world and don't desire the Lord, it will cause division in our own lives and in our churches. Wrong desires. And sometimes we don't get what we want because we don't ask. We see this in James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And the very fact that the people of the early church were not praying was a fact. It was an indication that they didn't look to God for their satisfaction, but they were looking to be satisfied somewhere else. They didn't go to God for help because they didn't ask for help. They thought that they could figure it out on their own. They thought, if I can just work harder and just be the best, then I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied, I'll be fulfilled. But they realized that they weren't fulfilled. 
because only God can fulfill our deepest longings. But yet they didn't ask. They didn't ask the Lord to give them abundant life and to fulfill them. And so they didn't get because they didn't ask. They had wrong desires. They just wanted things for themselves and not for the Lord or for others. That's what caused division in the church. But the second reason that caused division in the church was not just wrong desires. It was wrong motives. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Apparently, the people in the early church, they were praying the wrong prayers with the wrong motives. They were asking the Lord for things that they shouldn't have been asking for. And I guarantee it was material things. They wanted what their fellow congregant had. So they prayed that God would give them that too. And when they didn't get it, they'd be disappointed. They were praying with wrong motives. They were viewing God as if he was a genie in a bottle and they could just wish whatever they wanted and he would grant them the wishes. Some of you may have stayed in nice hotels in your life. When you stay in a nice hotel, you can get room service. And when you get room service, they can get you just about anything you want. Anything that you desire, whether it's a nice food or a nice meal or dessert. Some nice hotels even will do your ironing, iron your clothes for you and your suits. And they'll do all that for you. All you have to do is just a simple phone call. Hey, I need these things. And they'll come up and help you. And then you just charge that credit card and, hey, you're good. When we pray, sometimes we view God as a divine bellhop. Where we just think, hey, it's like room service. I can just charge this credit to to the Lord. He'll take care of it. And he'll give me what I want. He will satisfy me. He'll make me happy if I just ask. That's the wrong motives. Do you ever do this? Do you ever pray like this? Where you, you pray with the wrong motives? When you pray with the wrong motives or when you think and do things with the wrong motives, it will cause division in your own life and in the church. Wrong desires, wrong motives, also wrong friends will cause division in the church. Verse 4, you adulterous people. We're used to hearing James calling these people his friends, his beloved friends. Now he just throws this out there, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When when he said the word adulterous people, he's making a specific accusation against God's people saying that they have left the Lord, the one that they have loved and committed their lives to. They have committed adultery to the Lord. This was often used of the prophets of the Old Testament, this kind of analogy of spiritual adultery. And we see it even in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, when he said, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. When we make friends with the world, we grow distant from God. He becomes distant to us and even at odds with us because... We want both. We want one foot in with the world and all that it desires, and then we want one foot in with God and all that he gives. We can't have them both. It's not a both and, it's an either or. So when you have wrong friends and you make the world your friends, you will experience disorder and chaos in your life 
and in the church. John Calvin said, So great is the disagreement between the world and God that as much as anyone inclines to the world, so much he alienates himself with God. As much as you're inclined with what the world has to offer and the shiny new things that the world offers, as much as we cling to those things, we will alienate ourselves from God. So I'm going to ask you a question. If someone were to look at your life right now, right now, would they say you're a friend of the Lord or you're a friend with the world? Are you a friend with the world in that you accommodate with the world and you blend in with what the world teaches? And you say, oh, these teachings aren't so bad as long as it doesn't impact me. I'll, I'll be okay with it. Are you, are you looking for the, the newest and latest thing? Or are you really seeking the Lord? Are you a friend with the Lord? It's easy for us to let worldliness take over our lives. And because there's all these materialistic things in this world, we can begin to compare our lives with others. When's the last time you compared yourself with someone on social media? You see that they're having a good time on the be- at the beach and you're thinking, I wish I was on that vacation. When's the last time you went to another member's house and you said, man, I really like that carpet. I really like that flooring. I really like that furniture. Man, they really outdid themselves with all the renovations to their home. When's the last time that you saw your friend get a new car and you got in that car and you smelled the fresh new car and said, mmm, that smells good. I, I want one of those. I wish I had one of those. When's the last time you saw your married couple friend and they're going on dates and having a good time being empty nesters and they're traveling and you're thinking, yeah, I wish that was me right now. When's the last time you saw your friends with their kids and their kids are well-behaved and you're thinking to yourself, I wish my kids were that (laughs) well-behaved. Students in the room, when's the last time that you were playing a sport and your friend was a little better than you were or played better in that game than you did or made that grade a little higher than you? It happens all the time. It happens all the time where we can compare ourselves and we can cling to this world and not cling to the Lord. And when we become friends with the world, we commit spiritual adultery to God. Verse 5, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? There's a lot of debate about this verse Does it mean the Holy Spirit that dwells in us or the spirit that God gave us from the very beginning? I believe it's referring, even though it's not capitalized in the ESV, I believe it's referring to the Holy Spirit. God has given us his spirit to indwell in us and the spirit yearns for us to follow him and to be friends with him. And I particularly like the New King James Version, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, jealously. The Jerusalem Bible, the spirit which he sent to live in us, wants us for himself alone. The living Bible, the Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us, watches over us with tender jealousy. This fits with verse 4 in that God is jealous over us. He wants us to be his. He wants to be friends with us. He doesn't want our allegiance to be divided and for us to be friends with the world. But he wants our all, our total being. 
So that's a good translation here. But we know what causes disunity in the church. It's not just wrong desires or wrong motives. It's also wrong friends. So be careful who you're hanging with and be careful to allow worldliness to dominate your life. Fortunately, there's a good way to look at these things, and that is what causes unity in the church. Not just what causes disunity. We've already talked about that. But what about what causes unity? How does the church stay unified? And there's three things that are given here. A gracious God. We also know an act of allegiance and a humble posture. These three things can promote unity amongst the church. First, we see a gracious God will promote unity. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is not talking about saving grace, how God saves us from our sins. It's talking about after we're saved, he gives us grace, more grace, to help us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. So whatever situation you find yourself in, God will give you grace to get you through it. I think about Romans 5.20, when sin increased, grace increased all the more. Even though we see more of our sin as we grow in our faith, we see God's grace more and more and more, and we're blown away by it. John Blanchard, he said it this way, For daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. I like John Newton's amazing grace when he said, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, through many struggles, trials, and tribulations, grace will lead us home. It will get us through those hard times. And it's God that does it. It's by the grace of God we go. So how do we promote unity in the church? Well, we rely on the grace of God. I learned something new this week about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. The greatest preacher of all time is, is the debate about him. And he, he ministered in London during his tenure as a pastor. He was good friends with a fellow pastor right down the road named Joseph Parker. And Charles Spurgeon, he, he brought in many orphans to his church. They, they kind of built or created an orphanage amongst their church. And it was one day where Joseph Parker, his friend, he made a comment to a couple people in public, and he said, you know, I'm a little concerned about some of the kids who are coming to the orphanage and just their, their health and their condition. He didn't talk about the orphanage itself. He just talked about the kids coming in. He said, I'm really concerned about these kids. Well, the people that heard Joseph Parker make that statement, they end up going to the newspaper, and they said, can you believe what Joseph Parker said about Charles Spurgeon? They said he was a horrible leader and that he, he didn't run a good orphanage well and that this, this place was a dump and it was just awful. That was the news story. Joseph Parker never said that. Well, Spurgeon reads the newspaper and he's horrified. He's like, I thought Joseph Parker was my friend. Why is he throwing me under the bus? Why is he saying these bad things? So the next Sunday he gets in the pulpit and he tells his church, Joseph Parker said this about me, and it's not true. Joseph Parker is wrong, and we love these kids. And he was defending himself, and he was just kind of being mean about Joseph Parker and saying, I can't believe Parker said this thing about me. Well, the next Sunday, 
most of Spurgeon's people went to Parker's church to see what Parker would say (laughs) in response. And apparently Spurgeon took the day off. He went on vacation or something. So a lot of his people ended up leaving and and hearing what Parker, and they said, oh, what's Parker going to say to this? We're going to see some action here with these two pastors. You know what Parker said? He said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. He said, I suggest instead of bringing money for our church, that we give a love offering for that orphanage at Spurgeon's church. The crowd was delighted. They were shocked. They thought he was going to defend himself and speak bad about Spurgeon. But instead, he, he said, let's give money to Spurgeon in this church. The ushers had to empty the collection plate three times. They got that much money. Well, the word got back to Spurgeon, of course, because he got all his money from his friend that he thought hated him. And later that week, he knocked on the the office door of Joseph Parker, and Spurgeon said, You know, Parker, you've practiced grace on me. You've given me not what I deserved. You've given me what I needed. And for that, I'm grateful. Just like Spurgeon experienced grace from his friend Parker, we experience God's grace every day. He gives us what we need, not what we deserve. That's what keeps unity in the church. It's God's grace. The second thing that can promote unity in the church is us having an active allegiance. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. The word submit is a military term, hypotusa, which means to yield under someone of greater authority, to basically follow the chain of command, to follow an order. When verse 7 says we are to submit to the Lord, it's saying we follow the orders of the Lord and we're prepared to do his work, to do his bidding. But notice what the verse continues on to say, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Resist, it's another military term that says to fight, to be prepared, to engage in battle. So we don't just submit under the Lord's authority and under his chain of command, We also actively obey him by fighting the enemy. And we engage with the enemy. It means we not only resist the devil so he will flee, but we stay focused and we keep our full active allegiance on God and not on Satan. We don't allow him to lead us in the ways of the world, but we allow God to lead us in his ways. We stay focused and we don't get distracted by Satan. Whenever you go to a big city like New York or Chicago, whenever you go to these big cities, you'll see store after store after store, and you'll see glass, and you'll, you'll notice all the promotions and the marketing that tries to win people into the store. Occasionally, you might see a live mannequin. Tony Evans said one, one day he was walking the streets of New York, and he noticed there was a mannequin. And he didn't know whether or not it was a real person or a fake person. So he went up to the mannequin and all of a sudden he he stopped and saw that the mannequin started blinking and it scared the daylights out of him. He's like, whoa, this person started blinking. That's a real person. He didn't know what to do with it. And so he just stood there for the next 10 minutes just waiting to see if this live mannequin would would move any other part of her body or her head or her neck or, or anything. But the only thing this mannequin did, this person did, was blink. 
She was amazing at what she did. And then he said, all of a sudden, there was, there was all these other people that came, this crowd that, that gathered around me, and we were watching this live mannequin to see if she would move, and they would do anything they could to get her to move. They would knock on the glass. They would yell at her. They would call her names. Uh, they would do anything. They would make faces at her just to see if she would move, and she kept character the entire time. Evan said, I was amazed at this live mannequin. And then he said, but then I began to think, even though all these people outside of the, of the store were trying to distract her and have her break character, she had someone else that was more important to her. And that was her boss who was paying her. And he said, that's what kept her from breaking character. She stayed focused on the goal and the task at hand, and that was to look like a mannequin and act like a mannequin. And she did it because she got paid. That was her job, and she submitted under her employer and didn't allow the outside distractions to get into her job. What a great example to think about when it comes to worldliness. We are not to allow Satan to distract us from staying focused on the Lord. We are not to allow the things of this world to distract us, to keep us from being loyal to the Lord, but we are to stay single-mindedly focused on him, actively engaging with the Lord, being loyal to him. That's what keeps peace and purity in the church, is active allegiance. We stay focused on God and we ignore Satan. God's grace and active allegiance. And the third thing that keeps the church pure and peaceful, peaceable, is for us to have a humble posture. Verse 8, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Historians have said that James, the author of this letter, his knees were calloused of that, and they were that of like a camel. Why? Because he was on them all the time praying to the Lord. He practiced what he preached. Drawing near means to pray he got on his knees every day praying and pleading for the Lord, asking him to give him grace each day because he knew he needed it. In the same way, we are to have a humble posture by bowing before the Lord, asking him to give us his grace each day and to help us to stay peaceful amongst one another. Verse 9, verse 8 and 9 Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Cleanse your hands. That means we clean our lives, our actions. Clean up one's acts is cleaning our hands. Purify our hearts. It means we purify our minds, our attitudes, our inner life. We don't just want to clean up our outer life, but we want to clean up our inner life. To mourn means to be devastated with our sins. We're horrified by our sins. Mourning means to express inner grief. We're just thinking and we're saddened by our sins and what it causes us and how it's hurt God and hurt others. Grieving the Holy Spirit, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. Wailing refers to that of funeral wailing. Whenever you lose a loved one, what do you do? You cry. You're saddened by it. You mourn. You wail. I've done a lot of funerals in my life, a lot, probably 75 or 80. I've heard a lot of wailing. That's how we are to deal with sin. 
We are to mourn. We are to turn our, our joy into mourning, our laughter into sadness. Not always, not 24-7. He's not saying that. He's saying at times as we think about our lives, our spiritual lives, we've got to mourn over our sins and grieve over our sins. Have you ever ridden a bike against the wind? If you've ridden your bike against the wind, what happens? It's harder because there's more resistance. There's also bugs that can get in your mouth. It's really gross. You know? <laughs> what will help you when you're riding the bike against the wind? You know what will help is if you just turn around and go the other way and let the wind take you. Let the wind carry you. Some of us are living our spiritual lives against the wind and we're meeting resistance where we just need to turn around and let the wind take us where it goes. The Holy Spirit is the wind and he will blow and he will lead us to where he wants us to go. And some of us just need to submit to that. And the number one way we can submit to that is when we confess our sins and we repent and we mourn and grieve over our sins. It's a humble posture that James is referring to here. You know, the way up is the way down. And I love verse 10, how it finishes up this section. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The NIV, he will lift you up in due time. In his time, he will lift you up when you humble yourselves before him. I love, and I love football. It's my favorite sport. What do these big offensive NFL linemen do? What are they taught? They're taught to get as low as they can. Why? Because they use leverage from that. And as they get lower, they're able to knock these 275, 320-pound linemen off their feet and guard their quarterback or running back. In the same way, we are taught as believers to get low. And as we lower ourselves, it gives us leverage to resist the world and resist the devil. Some of you like to do weightlifting. What's the number one thing you do to gain strength as a weightlifter? Squats. What do you do when you squat? You go low and you go up. You go low and you go up. Why? Because it builds your core and then it will impact the rest of your body. You have to go low to get stronger. The way up is the way down. And for us to get spiritually stronger, we've got to get low. We've got to go low. Most of us don't get low enough. We don't. Most of us don't get low enough. And we're not getting stronger because we're not willing to bend. So do you want to get stronger? You got to get willing to bend. You got to be willing to bend. You got to be willing to get lower. It's a humble posture that God is calling us to have. So I hope and I pray that Christ's covenant and the churches around us and our Knox County Church Network will be at peace with one another. And the way we can be at peace is by relying on a gracious God. It's by actively having our allegiance to him and not to Satan and to this world. And it's by having a humble posture, knowing that the way up is the way down.